It is Finance Friday. It is Daring Dialogue, Season 11, Episode 59. It is our last Daring Dialogue show of the season this year. We will be picking back up Lord Wills, as the Lord Wills, January 2nd, 2023. So our broadcast will resume January 2nd, 2023. And I am broadcasting on IG, Daring Dialogues, Facebook page, Daring Dialogues, and through our podcast, Daring Dialogues of the same name. Now, I have not been regularly broadcasting on the Facebook page only because of uh, Facebook's inconsistency with allowing me to post certain things and them bringing our um, content down and suppressing it in the algorithm. So if you've been looking for us and you've been on Facebook and you've been reading our articles on Daring Dialogues, but you've been looking for the live show, again, our live show is now on IG. You can join us there and follow the IG page, Daring Dialogues, for the live show. Again, we will be picking back up January 2nd, 2023. Today is Finance Friday, and we have been consistently reading from the book, The Whiteness of Wealth by Dorothy. (coughs) Excuse me. The Whiteness of Wealth by Dorothy A. Brown. I don't know where that sneeze came from, but it needs to go. All right. And the title of the book is How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. And so we are going to be starting today the chapter entitled The Best Jobs. We are on chapter four of this book. So if you want to grab this book over the holiday and get caught up on the reading, we are in chapter four. Chapter four is called The Best Jobs. This book has been very informative, very insightful, very enlightening about the tax code. Um, If you are engaged, you're getting engaged over the holidays, I recommend you and your uh, spouse to be pick this book up if you are African American and start reading up on the tax code and how to use the tax code to your benefit as a married couple. They've got some uh, insight into that. If you are a married couple and you just want some insight into understanding how the tax code works for or against you, depending on um, how you um, apply for your taxes. This is a great book to add to your resources. If you are a person who is dealing with student loans and you want to understand how the tax code affects your student loan and your student loan interest, another excellent resource for that. So this book has a variety, to me, it has a variety of different reasons why it would work or it would be a good resource. So whether you are single, whether you're married, whether you are getting ready to get married, whether you are, um, oh, and also if you are looking to purchase a home, there's a whole chapter in here about 
home purchasing and, and how the tax code affects your mortgage and your mortgage interest and all of that. So lots of different ways to apply this book. She's talking now in chapter four on the best jobs. Rachel, the Spelman College graduate we met in the last chapter has never been afraid of hard work. At age seven, she offered to walk her neighbor's trash to the shared dumpster for a dollar per bag and spent the profits at the ice cream truck. Throughout high school, she worked in retail and telemarketing, saving diligently for college. As an undergraduate eager to get experience and discover new interests, she worked hard to secure internships at well-known corporations. One at a major consumer goods manufacturer seemed to offer the opportunity to work on a marketing campaign about black women's health and beauty products. Another at an information technology company offered training in a fast growing field. Unfortunately, Rachel's entry into the corporate labor market wasn't all that she hoped for. At the information technology company, Rachel found herself isolated in a predominantly white office located in a predominantly white town. Excuse me, one moment. <clears throat> All right. At the consumer goods manufacturer, she asked to be included on the project about black women and was told there was no room on a majority white team. Her boss, a white woman, frequently disparaged Rachel's education at a performing arts high school, telling her, I know you like to sing and dance. You're not really the science type. I thought, she said, maybe corporate America just isn't for me. So that's when I decided to look into the nonprofit route. Building on a connection she'd made at a student leadership conference in college, she applied for and got a job with an Atlanta nonprofit that focused on diversifying the field of environmental conservation. The organization had black leadership and a majority black staff, a welcome change, but the salary was so low that Rachel qualified to live in public housing and she didn't have health insurance until she'd been at the company for two years. She was determined to keep paying off her student loans and establish her own retirement savings account, but her efforts left very little for other expenses. Healthcare became a treat instead of a given. They didn't provide vision or dental, so whenever I did have to go to the dentist, it was coming straight out of pocket, and the dentist was not cheap. For Christmas or my birthday, my mom was always like, what do you want? I'd say, if you could just pay for me to go to the dentist, I would call it even. For many black workers like Rachel, entering an anti-black labor market is rife with challenges. Whether the discrimination is overt, like Rachel's supervisor suggesting she liked it to sing or dance, or harder to prove, most black workers will struggle over the course of their careers to gain employment and succeed in it. The unemployment rate for black college graduates is higher now than it was 50 years ago. Black graduates of elite colleges have to send out an average of eight applications to receive an interview, while white graduates send six. Chris, the Argosi University student, attended Xavier University and HBCU for her undergraduate degree and says the career advice she received there was explicitly about how to create resumes that could beat the, the sorting algorithms on recruiting websites. 
then prepare for job interviews enough to overcome the stigma of being an identifiably black candidate. It was actually talked about. Some people just don't want to hire from HBCUs. There was a lot of, you need to do your homework and prepare. Once a black graduate is employed, things don't necessarily improve. Black workers consistently receive less compensation and have their performance judged by different standards. At the highest graduate and professional levels, black workers over a lifetime earn close to a million dollars less than their white peers. That's because when it comes to employee compensation, salary is only part of the picture. Approximately two-thirds, according to a recent study by the Institute on Assets and Social Policy, one-third of employee compensation goes in the form of benefits like health insurance and a retirement account, which come with significant tax advantages for both the employer and the employee. Employees are able to contribute a portion of their income to a retirement account, paying taxes on the money only when they retire while employers can deduct both employee salary and payments made to the trusts that hold the retirement funds, resulting in less reported taxable income and therefore lower taxes. Health insurance premiums are deducted by employers <clears throat> as well as excluded from reported income by employees. Those two perks are significant because retirement accounts enable wealth building, while good health insurance can prevent wealth depletion. For those employees with access to the tax-subsidized perks, participating is a win-win. Unfortunately, as in so many other areas, a seemingly straightforward tax break leaves out most Black employees. The occupational segregation that defines the labor market works both within companies and across industries. So not only do <clears throat> qualified Black workers often earn less than their white peers, giving them less income to actually put into retirement, but they are less likely to have access to a retirement account or health benefits at all. Occupational segregation constrains black wealth by building and creating white jobs and black jobs, and tax policy does not treat those jobs the same way. Like so many of today's implicitly racist systems, this is rooted in America's explicitly racist past. In the labor market, full access to government subsidies has often been preconditioned on being white. Think back to the previous chapters. Who could actually get an FHA-insured mortgage? Which returning World War II veterans could access college benefits? All of these things are compounding discriminations that have happened over the decades. Wage discrimination was explicit and legal in the early 20th century. The Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, which included minimum wage provisions, excluded farm laborers and domestic workers specifically because those were majority black occupations, according to the 1930 census. So you have a generation or generations of black people who were not under minimum wage provisions. They were actually being paid lower than minimum wage for decades. 65% of all black workers were in one or two or both of the fields. Several members of Congress objected to creating equal wage standards for black and white workers as the bill was being debated. 
but Florida Congressman James Mark Wilcox's explanation was most plain. There has always been a difference in the wage scale of white and colored labor. We may rest assured, therefore, that when we turn over to a federal bureau or board the power to fix wages, it will prescribe the same wage for the Negro that it prescribes for the white man. Now, such a plan might work in some sections of the United States, but those of us who know the true situation know that it just will not work in the South. You cannot put the Negro and the white man on the same basis and get away with it. This was in 1930. Now, even though it's actually illegal now to set them at different minimum wage provisions, we still know that there is a huge labor and wage gap. The lack of wage protections meant that black workers were simply not considered when retirement plans became more common among American workers during World War II. Those retirement plans had become tied to employment as an unintended byproduct of its wartime efforts to standardize tax policies and regulate wages, writes sociologist Beth Evans. Stevens, excuse me. In 1942, two acts of Congress, the Revenue Act and the Stabilization Act, incentivized employers to create pensions and offer other benefits. Pensions, which are typically sponsored by an employer or union, allow both workers and companies to set a portion of their earnings into a retirement account. Workers avoid paying taxes on the contribution or on any interest earned on the account which is typically invested. There are two different types of employment-based retirement accounts, defined benefit plans and defined contribution plans. Defined benefit plans, more commonly referred to as pensions, are generally found in union-represented workplaces. A defined benefit plan guarantees a payout at retirement, regardless of how much is invested. It's low risk for employees and puts the burden on the payout of the employer which is why employers do not like them, and in recent decades have shifted toward defined contribution plans. Defined contribution plans like 401k accounts, which are now the most common kind of retirement-based plan, depend on worker contributions, sometimes with employer match funds. They also don't guarantee income. If at retirement a worker's account balance is $1,000, that's the sum total of the worker's retirement benefit. In both cases, any money set aside by the employer to provide that payout is treated as tax-free to the employee, though the employee does pay taxes on money when it's withdrawn at retirement or when they turn 72. Retirement accounts allow people to have income once they stop working. Without them, many more Americans would spend their final decades in poverty but don't think they were created out of care and concern for older workers. The Revenue Act of 1942 incentivized companies to create pensions by levying a huge tax between 80% and 90% on the excess profits, defined as corporate profits that were greater than they'd been prior to the war. Companies could avoid the tax by placing some profits into pension trusts and then deducting those amounts from their overall profits. At the same time, Congress established the Stabilization Act of 1942, which created wage controls limiting raises. 
but excluded benefits such as health insurance and pensions from these controls. The Revenue Act forced employers to find new ways to compete for the best workers, who in their minds were white, and tax-free benefits were a way to attract them. Two key provisions of the Revenue Act led more employers to provide more benefits. One required pension plans to cover at least 70% of employees in order for the employer to receive tax breaks. And a second stated that the calculation of benefits could not be skewed in favor of high-income workers. Employers cannot, for example, agree to a 1% 401k contribution for wages up to $50,000 and then an additional 15% contribution for the excess over $50,000 because it would only benefit higher compensated employees. So, as the percentage of Americans subject to tax increased, these tax-free benefits moved down the income scale from higher income to lower and middle-class white working taxpayers. Between 1941 and 1945, contributions to pension trusts went from 171 million to 857 million. And by the end of World War II, health insurance coverage tripled and pension coverage increased by a third. Black workers, however, simply weren't part of the new wave of employment incentives and protections. By deliberately leaving, majority black occupations out of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is an oxymoron. How are you gonna have a Fair Labor Standards Act and you leave out black laborers? Congress ensured that black workers would have to work for whatever wages an employer wanted to provide and forget about raises or pensions. There are so many ways that this country owes us reparations. At this point, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> the number of ways that black people have been excluded from gaining wealth in this country, not even including slavery, is enough for our government, you would think, to say we need to pay reparations for all of the ways that we have disadvantaged black people in this country. And they still don't seem to get it. Let's continue reading. <clears throat> Employers were permitted to pay black workers less, keep them out of jobs that could be filled by white workers, and exclude them from insurance and benefit plans, all with the legal backing of the federal government. So when we're talking about the quality of life for black people in this country, the quality of life for World War II era black people who many of them are still living, the quality of life for Jim Crow era adults who many of them are still living, there is so much to recoup and so much to repair in this country. It's like just just pick a just pick a sector and just start repairing. So whether it's what they've done with taxes, what they've done with wages, <coughs> excuse me, what they've done with housing, what they've done with the environment, what they've done with displacement, what they've done with land theft, like 
pick just just pick a area and begin some repair but to continually year after year deny that there is a need for repair or thinking if i close my eyes the problem is just going to go away is not it the writer says here take my father for example Daddy was a plumber who worked for many years for a small private company. Though his boss, Mr. Gelman, was very generous, you may recall he helped my parents buy their house. Like most small employers, he did not offer health insurance or a retirement plan. For years, my parents worked and raised a family paying for our health care with their after-tax dollars. And like Rachel, we were very lucky to avoid serious illness. My parents couldn't afford to pay for dentist visits for all four of us, so Miss Dottie took only me and my sister. There were better jobs out there for a skilled plumber, and the best of them were in the public sector, which offered tax-free health insurance and a defined benefit plan. From 1950 to 1970, the proportion of the workforce with some type of health insurance through their jobs went from roughly 50% to 80%. Almost 50% of workers in the private sector had retirement plans, more than twice the percentage in 1950. But my father was not one of those employees. To get a job in the coveted public sector, you had to belong to the union. In fact, the existence of the union was part of the reason the job was so coveted. The expansion in benefits like pension and health insurance in the post-war years was due largely in part to collective bargaining. But the union was famous for creating obstacles that prevented non-white workers from joining. In 1964, there were only 16 black plumbers in the union, out of a total of 4,100. When the city forced a contractor to hire four non-white plumbers on a huge project in the Bronx that year, the union plumbers walked off the job. When the Civil Rights Act was passed later that year, the unions were forced to integrate and in the mid-1970s, my father got a job with the New York City Housing Authority. My father died in 1994, and the pension he earned, thanks to the union, continues to support my mother, the writer says. But he worked for 20 years before he had access to the same wealth building benefits as the city's white plumbers. Thanks to the Civil Rights Act, Today's employers aren't permitted to openly offer higher wages and better benefit plans to white employees. But the explicit discrimination laid the groundwork for the implicit discrimination that is yet alive and working well into the labor market today, excluding black Americans from jobs that offer health insurance and retirement accounts. If we think of retirement accounts as a pyramid, the way we did with higher education, then the best, those at the top, are defined benefit plans, followed by employer matching defined contribution accounts. At the bottom are IRAs. They're available to anyone with earned income, but employees are responsible for funding them and paying any fees associated with them. Over the last few decades, the percentage of employees covered by defined contribution as opposed to defined benefit plans has significantly increased from 41% in 1985 to 61.3% in 2010, according to the research. I believe I'm going to stop there for today.
when we come back in the new year, which will be back January 2nd, 2023 at 11 a.m., we're going to take a look at the second half of this writer's work talking about the best jobs. How are all of these things affecting your taxes and your ability to get some benefit out of the tax system. It'll be a great time to come back because we know most people will begin to file their taxes between January 1st and January 30th, I believe. So, the last thing I want to share with you today, as this is Finance Friday and it is also where we like to support small business. I want to share with you a special small business owner. Why this person is special to me? Because she is related to me. Her name is Celestine Clarington. And Celestine has begun to make her own custom jewelry. And when I saw her putting up her custom-made jewelry online, I was like, oh my goodness, this is really, really beautiful. How can I support your business? How can I support what it is that you're, you're doing? And so this is one of her pieces. As you can see, this is all done by hand all done by hand every single strand and it's actually a pretty solid piece it's actually pretty weighty and her prices are amazing but I know they're going to go up. <laughs> so I ordered this piece and I was so impressed by it. Does she have a commercial or video blurb for her business yet? She does not. And I am going to send you her information, uh, Apostle Sonia, so that you can contact her um, and maybe look at maybe helping her with the advertising part. Um, she is an older woman. She is, I believe, retired. She is a widow. Her husband um, recently passed. She's also the sister of uh, Deborah Roberts. Most people know Deborah Roberts and uh, Al from the Al Roker. Um, those, Deborah is her sister and Al is her brother-in-law. But she just started um, creating these pieces and I was simply blown away. So I said, um, I saw this piece and I said, well, can, do you do custom pieces? And she said, yes, I do. Um, here's another piece that I ordered. This was from her initial, um, creations and all done by hand, beautiful work. So I asked her, I said, do you do custom pieces? And she said, yes. Um, so I told her what colors I wanted and she doesn't just do necklace 
necklaces. She also does earrings. She didn't do these. I'm uh, just letting you know. She also does earrings and she also does bracelets. So this time around, I ordered a custom piece in my favorite color, purple. And so she did a, a purple and silver combination for me, which I'm actually going to be wearing uh, this holiday season. And she also did a bracelet for me to match the necklace. So I'm going to get, I'm going to show you those two. So here is the bracelet. All right. Craftsmanship is excellent. Now I am an artist myself <laughs> and I've done some jewelry making myself. So I can tell you, uh, that the craftsmanship on this is excellent, superb. It's got a clasp. You can adjust it. I feel, why do I feel like I'm on QVC? <laughs> uh, but this is the bracelet. And when I put it on, it actually fits me perfectly. So she was able to uh, measure it out for me perfectly without um, taking my measurement for it, which was pretty amazing. And so that's the bracelet. And then this is the piece. It's in purple and silver. Again, craftsmanship, amazing. Craftsmanship, amazing. And I can tell you right now, because I've bought statement pieces before from, you know, your regular department store, etc., Chico's, wherever, a piece like this is going to cost you at least, at least 70 to 100 bucks, at least. Um, and so, yeah, her prices are going to go up, but I'm telling you, if you want to get an order in, DM me, I'm getting her information for how you can order. Um, I have her cash app. Her cash app is Celestine Clarington, C-E-L-E-S-T-I-N-E, -E Clarington, C-L-A-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. Um, yeah, so all of these pieces that I have right now is under 50. But clearly, <laughs> the craftsmanship can compete with anything in your local or in your local um, department store. So um, I just wanted to say shout out to her for um, starting a business. Shout out to her for her craftsmanship, shout out to her. She does do different styles. I just happen to like the beaded look, the multi-strand beaded look. So um, again, if you want to DM me, I can get you her email address and um, you all can communicate that way. Like I said, she is a new business owner and you know, I told her, listen, <laughs> the work that you're doing your prices need to increase. So all I'm going to say is if you want to order something while she is um, available and, and, and still available to make some custom pieces for you, this would be a time to do it. One of the things I enjoy about um, this platform is I enjoy, and uh, one of the things I enjoy, period, is discovering new talent discovering new people. Um, uh, 
using my platform to help people get more exposure. There are people out here who have plenty of exposure and they're doing well. But I really like to highlight people who may be just getting in, get just getting started or just getting into a field. Um, I, I feel like that's something that I like to do, you know, and this is amazing. And I told her, I'm like, the work that you're doing, you need to charge more. <laughs> um, so again, if you want to order a custom piece now, because I believe they're going to go up, order a custom piece now. DM me. I'll get you her email address so you all can communicate directly. And um, you can go to her Facebook page. I'm going to put her, uh, I'm going to put some links to some of her images that are on her Facebook page. You go to her Facebook page. I'll put the link for her personal profile. Hopefully, I think everything is set on public so you can see them. But clearly, you can see the work because I'm showing it to you. I'm wearing it myself. I've gotten so many compliments on this piece since I bought it. And it's a custom one-of-a-kind piece. There is not a duplicate of it. So that's another good thing about um, supporting small businesses is you get the opportunity to support a smaller business and you get the opportunity to have something that is original, unique, and one-of-a-kind and tailored to you. All right. So there she is. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So yes, her email is Celestine, C-E-L-E-S-T-I-N-E, -E -E, Clarington, C-L-A-R-I-N-G-T-O-N, at gmail.com. You can tell her, Shantae sent me. So she'll know that, um, you know, I'm not getting any affiliate link or whatever, whatever people do these days. I'm just trying to support her as a small business owner, but let her know that I sent you, you saw um, the pieces that were made and you'd like to put in an order, tell her what you're looking for, um, even send her some pictures. Like I sent her an example of the kind of necklace that I wanted. I told her what colors and she picked those things out. She sent me some images to say, hey, do these, do these colors work for you? Do these beads work for you? And I approved it. And then she personally crafted it for me. So she has been um, completely hands-on in the process. And I really appreciate her. Um, and I appreciate her gift. And I'm going to continue to order custom pieces because now I literally have a family member that does awesome work. And I love, I don't know who else out there, but I love costume jewelry i think i get it from my grandmother <laughs> but i love costume jewelry this is my grandmother's brooch she gave this to me before she passed away some years before she passed away um but i love costume jewelry and so now i know where i'm going to be getting my costume pieces from custom made all right so again her email is celestine clarington C-E-L-E-S-T-I-N-E, -E -E, Clarington, C-L-A-R-I-N-G-T-O-N, at gmail.com. Okay? All right. So please 
reach out. Apostle Sonia, please reach out and let her know um, that you would like to offer her um, some opportunities to advertise and talk to her because I know that's your specialty in terms of video, videography. Uh, talk to her about, you know, making a small commercial to advertise her work. All right, everyone. So this has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I have been your host, Shante Charles. I want to thank you all for your time and attention today. As we have wrapped up, this is our last broadcast for the year. We will resume January 2nd, 2023. If you are planning to be on on December 30th, we will be on our YouTube channel, Church Love 333, and we will be on our Facebook channel, uh, Facebook page, Life Nation. We're going to be talking and having a prophetic dialogue about what is coming in 2023. Um, the Lord has given us a specific and definite word about some things that are going to happen in 2023. So we want to share that with you, but we will be sharing it on the Life Nation page. That's going to be next Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that will officially be our last live of the year. Thank you all again for tuning in. I hope you have a great and wonderful day. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be light. Take care, everyone, and God bless.